If you're enjoying History's Greatest Cities, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast mini-series, History's Greatest Cities, exploring Europe's most beautiful, intriguing and historically significant cities. I'm Paul Bloomfield, travel writer and history fan, and in each episode of this series, I'll be virtually roaming the streets and sights of a great metropolis in the company of an expert historian guide. Together we'll delve into origin myths and uncover stories of shifting populations conflicts and culture, wealth and weakness, and we'll visit key locations that reveal fascinating insights into the people and events that shape the modern city. Today I'll be exploring Prague with Dr. Eleanor Janiger, a medieval historian who teaches at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Her new book, Looking at Women's Roles in Medieval Society, The Once and Future Sex, is published by W.W. Norton and is out in March 2023. Eleanor, who has both Czech and Slovak roots, lived in Prague for a number of years and is the ideal guide to lead us through the long and storied past of the Czech capital. We'll visit castles and cathedrals, silver mines and beer halls, and some windows through which eminent Prague grandees were hurled. Welcome, Eleanor, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So, Prague... This must be one of the most storied cities in Europe, certainly one of the most popular for tourists now, particularly in the past quarter of a century, I'd imagine. Like many great cities, 
Prague has an intriguing founding myth. Could you explain a little about both the legend and the historical truth about the emergence of the region that became Bohemia and the founding of the city? Absolutely. So the legend starts with a fairy princess named Lebouge. And Lebouge eventually meets a plowman named Pshemisl, and they together found the Pshemislid dynasty, which will end up ruling until the 14th century. And now it's it's a lovely story. Like most medieval dynastic stories, there needs to be some sort of little hook of mythology to justify why it is that these people are ruling. So that's what gets it done here. But to be honest, we know that there have been people living in the region of Prague much, much further back in time than this story comes to us. So we know, for example, that the Celtic Boii tribe was originally there in kind of prehistoric times, which is where we get the name Bohemia, which is the name of the state that Prague is located in. And after that, we have some kind of movement of Germanic tribes into the area. This is largely due to the Hunnic invasions of Europe at the time. So people start kind of moving about <laughs> rather a lot and once uh, until it gets his thing going. So people are kind of fleeing from that. And that kind of pushes new groups of people into the area of Bohemia. And it isn't really until around the year of 800 or so that Prague really gets going, though. And we can date this to the buildings that are at Vichirad. And Vichirad is in the south of the city in Prague. And this is allegedly where Le Bouchemisil set up their base. So it's where the very, very first castle and everything is built there. So it's interesting because we have a myth that is kind of long ago and far away, a fairy meets a, a, a plowman and they set up this, this dynasty. But really, that's actually further forward in the medieval period than what we really know about the area before then. So we've reached the Middle Ages. We have an established settlement on the Vltava River on the site of what we now call Prague. How did that city rise to prominence or that settlement and what forces were at play during its early centuries? How important was Bohemia on the European stage at that time? So Bohemia, interestingly, kind of creeps into becoming important at this time. And Prague is very well placed in order to be important. In the first place, it's got a great location on the Vltava. It's very useful for trading back and forth. Um, And what starts happening is that first Prague is mentioned as being a very useful trading center. So we know from 965, um, a Jewish merton named Ibrahim Ibn Yaqub was talking about Prague as a busy trading center already in the 10th century. And in 973, Prague gets its own bishopric. Now, one of the reasons why Prague wasn't particularly important kind of before 800 is they hadn't Christianized yet. <laughs> the, the Czechs uh, were a bit of holdouts on that one. Uh, but it's uh, St. Venceslas, who everyone knows from the Carol Good King Venceslas, um, is the first who kind of promotes Christianity within the kingdom. His grandmother converted to Christianity, and then he does. It's then brought underneath the arches of the Holy Roman Empire. And this is kind of, you know, contested. Czechs weren't particularly happy about this, but it brings it into a trading conglomeration with a lot of the German lands, and that becomes incredibly important. However, around about in the medieval period as well, we start to find large silver mines outside of Prague. Finding silver mines outside the city contributes to it being a particularly wealthy city. So this is a place that is well-connected. It's an important part of the Holy Roman Empire in general, and it is an outpost for Christianity in the earlier medieval period. So it's from here that you start to get uh, incursions into other parts of Eastern Europe. So for example, 
example, into Pomerania, trying to convert people to Christianity. So it becomes this really important kind of crossroads, both for the Slavic world and the Germanic world. We've talked about the Semislid dynasty and Prague's position in the Holy Roman Empire, and we've seen how the wealth derived from silver mining and trading fueled the development of the city. How is that evident in the monuments and buildings still standing in Prague today? So we're very, very lucky to kind of have a real idea of what the the setup of the town was at the time. So the Przemyslids established their first castle on top of the hill in the Hradzini, which is over on the left bank of the Vltava. This is where one would put a castle. It's up on top of a big hill, so it's easily defensible. But over on the other side of the river, on the right bank, we have the old town, or Starimiesto, begin to develop. And the first bridge ever over the Vltava is built around in 1170 to a facilitate moving back and forth between the old town where you have most of the shops where a lot of the commerce is happening and the Rajni, which is the castle yes but it's also where the cathedral is so it's a very very important place uh, for both religious and political reasons and then outside of the Rajni, you have the Malastrana, which kind of means small side or little side developed kind of all around the castle which is where you have diplomats people like that kind of live And if you go there now, you can still sort of see this kind of dichotomy. So over closer to the castle, you still have a very, very many of the city's varying diplomatic missions. So, you know, if you need to go to your to get your passport renewed and you're foreign, that's where you go, things like this. So the city really kind of emerges in these two halves, the smaller bit that is clustered around where power lies and the larger bit, which is really bringing in uh, the Jewish communities, the trading communities, people like this. So it's a real bustling, bustling place. Okay, so obviously Prague was growing as a result of that trade during the 12th century and into the 13th. But I think a lot of the buildings that we really know today and we associate with Prague, the spires and the squares and the bridges and so on, date from a little bit later, the 14th century. Can you tell us why it was that such a, a golden age developed at that time? Yeah, so it's absolutely fascinating as far as I'm concerned. This is this is when things start getting really good <laughs> in Prague. <laughs> um, and it's down to the fact that uh, the last Przemyslid heir dies out. So uh, this is one of uh, several many yawns. And there is no male heir to the crown. So it ends up going through Elzbeta, who is one of the daughters, to her husband, who is John of Bohemia or John the Blind. Everybody knows him because he's the one who went into the Battle of Chrissy blindfolded and gets himself killed. But his son Charles ends up taking over the throne. Um, And Charles is an incredibly diplomatic, charismatic, very, very intelligent man. You know, I hate to go full great man theory, but he's a very smart guy. He was raised at the court in France because his mother was plotting to overthrow his father and make him the king of Bohemia. It was a very unhappy marriage. Uh, But he eventually returns to Prague and he loves it. He really feels connected to the place and it's something that he really wants to kind of bring into the forefront. So he eventually becomes crowned Holy Roman Emperor and he decides to make Prague the imperial capital, not just the Luxembourg capital. And he spends lots and lots of money making this happen. Now, he claims in his autobiography that when he returned to Prague, the castle was in ruins and everything was really terrible and he had to basically rent rooms in the old town. Um, And this is probably a slight exaggeration, but it is true 
true that things were getting a little bit worse for the wear in Prague at the time. And he pours absolutely tons of money into the city. Um, he brings in architects to kind of introduce the French reign its style of architecture, So, which is why you get all these gorgeous Gothic spires all over the place. So he rebuilds the castle. Uh, he rebuilds the cathedral. He also gets the cathedral changed from a bishopric into an archbishopric, so it's no longer under the auspices of Mainz. So Prague is becoming more important from a kind of religious standpoint as well. Um, he builds the Tin Cathedral on the Old Town Square. He builds a new bridge, the Charles Bridge, over the Vltava. He establishes a university, which at the time is called the University of Prague, but now is called Charles or Karlovo University. And he is basically responsible for bringing it into the 14th century and making it one of the fastest growing cities in Europe. Um, and indeed, it becomes the largest city north of the Alps on the continent. So in a very quick span of time. And so it's at this point in time that the new town is established. And this can kind of uh, be confusing to people who are visiting Prague because you go to the new town and it's from the 14th century. <laughs> but rest assured, it, it was new for them. So you have things established, for example, like uh, the um, Charles Square, which becomes the largest uh, city square north of the Alps, all kinds of wonderful things. And he also uh, collects lots of relics from all over Europe. And so he makes Prague also a center of religious community. So people will come from all over Europe, for example, to see things like the Lance of Longrinus, which pierces Christ's side at the crucifixion. You know, he's got wonderful things like this. So in a very, very short time, Prague absolutely thrives. And this is in the 14th century when a lot of other people are having trouble for things with things like the Black Death. For some reason, we're not exactly sure why, Prague remains relatively unscathed. We don't see the huge die-offs that other places do. So other places are having their population collapse, and Prague is absolutely on a come-up at the time. So it's the reason now that you go to Prague and everything is called Charles something or another is this guy. And it's because at that point in time, Prague was absolutely the epicenter of Europe. So Charles IV clearly did a great job in building this wonderful city with its amazing architecture, its culture, its religion. But this didn't last too long, did it? So how did that golden age come to an end? Well, you know, it's all well and good to establish a university, but who knows what might, people might get up to in that university, essentially. Um, and the trouble all starts with Jan Hus, uh, who is a scholar at the university um, in Prague. And he starts his own chapel in 1402 called Bethlehem. And he is really, really influenced by the teachings of John Wycliffe from over in England. Um, at this point in time, there's a Czech queen on the English throne, and there is a great deal of back and forth between England and Prague, uh, even though at the time when the princess was sent over to England, uh, everyone wasn't sure where London was, and they had to go check on whether or not a Czech girl could really uh, live there um, in any so sort of style. But People really love the teachings of, of Wycliffe, and Jan Hus then elaborates on this, and he's working harder and harder at this. Now, Wycliffe is condemned by the church, and subsequently Jan Hus becomes condemned by the church. But people really like his teachings. Now, the trouble all kind of kicks off in 1419, um, when a priest named Jan Zalewski threw some city councillors out of the windows of the new town hall um, in the first defenestration of Prague. We'd go on to have several more. And this kind of marks the time when the Hussite peasant rebels kind of kick off. And there is the first ever large scale kind of Protestant religious movement in Europe. Now, we can't really use the term Protestant because, you know, we're, we're not talking about, uh, you know, anyone who's kind of connected to Martin Luther. But it's the first real 
movement away from the Catholic Church and kind of advocating for personal reform, personal piety. And the Hussites do really well. So uh, the king at the time, who is Charles I's son of Venceslas, is by all accounts not very well liked, and he's not very clever. Um, and the Hussites kind of take over things very, very quickly. And the empire actually calls several crusades against them, um, all of which are defeated um, as the result of the wonderful military news of the leader Jan Zizka, who invents all kind of interesting maneuvers like making what's called a Wagenberg. So like making a big circle of wagons and then attacking everyone from outside of it. And eventually the empire gives up and <laughs> Bohemia is allowed to be a Hussite kingdom. But it really does kind of take its toll in terms of the merchant classes. There is a lot of infighting back and forth about what sort of flavor and brand of Hussitism people are going to have. So there's a lot of unrest kind of right in the early bit of the 15th century. And now I would argue that that's terribly interesting and one of the great things about Prague, but it's not always great for trade. <laughs> so. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Absolutely. And presumably at this time, Charles was Holy Roman Emperor. The Hussites have taken over. What, what does that mean for Prague in terms of its status in Europe? Yeah, so its status drops quite precipitously. So it, initially, Venceslas was meant to take over from Charles, and a lot of the imperial electors had promised that that would happen. Instead, the crown goes to his other son, Sigismund. Um, and Sigismund is much more established in Hungary and what will be Austria. And so we begin to kind of see the imperial crown kind of start to gravitate eastwards, and it doesn't really come back to Prague for quite some time. So it maintains in importance as a regional center. It will always be an important trade center. And frankly, they've got rather a lot of money because of all the silver mines. So it never drops off the map completely, but it does lose the kind of imperial shine for a couple hundred years there. You have this kind of low point after the golden age of Charles and the Hussite war. How does Prague regain its political and cultural prominence? Well, it comes along um, in the person of Rudolf II, who is one of the Habsburgs. And he was the King of Bohemia and Archduke of Austria. But unlike a lot of other Habsburgs who saw themselves as very tied to you know the, the Austrian way of seeing things, uh, Rudolf just absolutely loved Prague. Um, so like Charles before him, he kind of 
returns and he puts a bunch of money into it. So he spends a lot of time bringing uh, various thinkers from all over Europe into the court. Um, he spends a lot of money on art. He redoes a lot of various buildings around the city. So, you know, anything that you see called Renaissance in the city is generally a result of Rudolf's time. So he is a really kind of flamboyant person who's really interested in art and architecture and just sort of your consummate, quote unquote, Renaissance ruler. And this does great thing for Prague at the time. And basically it's the influx of cash and prestige that they were kind of missing at the time that allows them to kind of regain their former position in the world. And of course that brought with it, as you say, an influx of intellectuals and artists and creativity and a lot of new ideas were propping up in Prague at that time. Yes, absolutely. So this, it, it becomes a big uh, center for um, astronomy. For example, uh, there's a lot of specific work that is being done there looking at the stars. You have a lot of back and forth between the Jewish communities and the Christian community there because uh, Prague's got one of the largest uh, Jewish towns in Europe. Um, and this is really kind of fruitful and very much encouraged by Rudolf II. And it's also kind of a time when new things are coming in from the Ottoman Empire as well. And now, frankly, Bohemia is a lot better place to not really worry about Turkish people kind of taking over, but being able to poach sort of the best of thinking that comes out of the Arabic world as well. So it's in a really lucky position for this time period because it's a, a time when there's a really exciting scientific discovery going on and they've got a lot of money and they've got the stability to pursue these things. So what sort of period are we talking about here? So here we're kind of talking about sort of the 16th century into the 17th century. Rudolf comes to the Holy Roman Imperial throne in 1576, um, and he dies in 1612. So it's at this point in time that Prague is once again this big imperial city, and that is exactly what they needed in order to kind of recover from their old embarrassments, I suppose. This is obviously a, a fairly regular occurrence in major cities. You have ups and then you have downs again. So we've had Charles and we had the Hussite War, we've had Rudolf, and then what happens after him? So after that, you do have a kind of large economic boom in Prague. The population takes off and by 1705, you've got about um, 80,000 people who are living there. At this point in time, you then have the amalgamation of the varying Prague towns into one kind of administrative city center. You have lots and lots of merchants from across the empire that come in here. So, you know, we're, we're talking about sort of the height of the Habsburg. So there's Germans, there's Spanish people, there's Italian nobility, and a lot of them settle down. And it becomes a really interesting crossroads because you'll still have people who are quite Catholic, who have kind of been attracted there by the Habsburg court. But you also have people who are quite Hussite in their way of thinking thinking or Protestant. So even though we have kind of a big push to re-Catholicize everybody uh, during the Counter-Reformation, you still have these really interesting kind of very peculiar Czech ways of looking at the world that um, are on display in Prague, which is you know, fantastic. Then when we kind of have the onset of the Industrial Revolution, Prague takes to it very, very quickly. So uh, they have a specific industrial quarter, Carlin, that's established in 1817, and lots and lots of factories end up springing up. Now, this again has a lot to do with the mining industry in Prague. There's a lot of coal. So that makes one able to establish ironworks, uh, which are incredibly important at the time. And by 1837, we're looking at a population of about 100,000, which 
is really large uh, for the 19th century at the time. So around this, we kind of start getting an influx of students, um, a lot more artisans and artists. um, And eventually you do kind of have some pushbacks about Austrian rule. So we're kind of getting into the later 19th century and you start to have more ideas about nationalism, more sentiments about an idea of Czechness coming forward at this time. And so suddenly you have kind of pushes towards making Prague its own capital rather than being dependent upon kind of a larger Austro-Hungarian idea of nationality. So there was quite an influx of German people welcomed and encouraged at that time. And that had an impact on what came afterwards. Can you explore what was happening at the turn of the 20th century and how Prague sat within the wider events of the first couple of decades? Yeah, so within, you know, the, the first huge thing really to happen in the 20th century, of course, is World War One, And under those auspices, the Czechs were fighting alongside the Austro-Hungarians. Um, there's a wonderful book about this, uh, The Good Soldier Schweck, uh, which is a wonderful comedy novel that I recommend anybody uh, live that kind of lampoons the absurdity of this position for for Czech people. So, you know, to be fair, there had always been German speakers living in the Czech lands, and that simply was the case, but more and more had moved in during the Industrial Revolution. So kind of one of the first things that happens after the Austro-Hungarian empire collapses after World War One is that the Czechs are gone. So in 1918, um, you have the newly independent Czechoslovak Republic, and Prague is then its capital. So by then, you know, kind of pushing up into 1930, there's about 850,000 people living in Prague. And it's now a center of a kind of new form of nationalism. Now, the Slovaks are are still hanging out um, as well, and they have to come over to Prague rather a lot, which will become a point of contention later on in the century. But unfortunately, um, at this point in time, they a lot of Czech land was specifically surrendered to the Nazis um, in order to attempt to appease Hitler. Um, This is in the Munich Agreement in 1938. And we actually have footage of this happening. And the Czechoslovak contingent was locked in the hallway when the what was then called the Sudetenland was given away to uh, Germany, and they were not allowed to advocate for themselves. You know, uh, it was simply decided that um, England and France knew what was good for us. And uh, interestingly, by giving one of the only tank factories on the continent to Hitler, maybe everything would calm down, uh, but it didn't really uh, go that way. So unfortunately uh, for uh, Prague, it was basically taken over by the Nazis very, very quickly. This was never an easy thing, but we saw some really terrible things. So, you know, we we see the Jewish population rounded off and sent off to concentration camps, which is awful. But there are periodic revolts against uh, the Nazis back and forth. And at points in time, they're able to do things like, you know, kill the Nazi overlord of Bohemia, but then they kind of massacre several villages in retribution. It's all very, very depressing. But eventually they are able to kind of rise up on May 5th, 1945, and they kick the Nazis out and the Red Army kind of shows up a few days later. So then there's sort of the same period of trying to reconstruct economically after World War II, um, but specifically under the auspices of the Soviet form of control of communism, I would say. The well-known assassination you mentioned was that of Reinhard Heydrich, which has been made into various books and films since then. So after the Second World War, the Soviet Red Army has advanced, but the communist takeover of Czechoslovakia didn't happen straight away, right? No, it didn't. It's kind of gradual. And there's a lot of back and forthing here because, you know, there is very, you know, there are very 
long and strong traditions of the Czech Republic, well, Czechoslovakia at the time, of kind of debate. And so it doesn't happen all at once. It's kind of creeping. And indeed, even when it does become communist at first, there are these ideas that they're going to kind of do their own form of communism. You know, they don't necessarily want the Soviet brand of it. And so although there are a lot of kind of heavy-handed measures at first, there is a movement that is very important um, in 1968 called the Prague Spring, where everybody wants to kind of liberalize. This, unfortunately, does not go very well for us, and the Soviets send in tanks to kind of suppress everybody. But it's also a testament to the fact that, you know, Czechs have this very long um, tradition of disputation and kind of moving forward with things. They understand what it's like, you know, because they've just come out of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, kind of having people tell you what it is you're meant to do, and then pushing the edges back to see where you can get your own sort of breathing space. As I say, unfortunately, though, this this movement is really crushed. And so we kind of lose uh, Alexander Dubček, who was the president at the time. Um, his leadership is uh, terminated by the Soviets. And it isn't until 1989 that we are fully able to come out from underneath that. And so it's at that time that we have Václav Havel eventually released from prison. But one of the wonderful things that you see, and one of the things that's wonderful about Prague's culture and, you know, everything that it's able to do is even in these really oppressive, you know, communist times, you have incredible art and a real sense of place in Prague. So people are still very interested in being Czech and promoting their own culture and art, even when it's dangerous to do so. So we have wonderful literary uh, things come out of this, like, for example, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, which um, everybody knows. Um, I've got a personal favorite to plug here, which is Love and Garbage, which I always recommend to kind of really get a kind of idea about the artistic output underneath the Soviets. But there's still a real important artistic and intellectual culture that's still happening no matter what the Soviets attempt to do at this time. Come the end of the 80s, and obviously the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse, I suppose, in stages of communism across Eastern Europe and, of course, the Soviet Union, which, of course, was known as the Velvet Revolution, I think, in Czechoslovakia. How did the Czech Republic, and as it became, and Prague reinvent itself after that period? So interestingly, um, you then have the Velvet Divorce, which is what we call um, the breaking into the Czech Republic and Slovakia that happens in 1993. Um, and now this sort of happens because it turns out we weren't being very nice to Slovaks. We were making them speak Czech the whole time and come to Prague. So it's interesting because in one, on the one hand, you kind of lose uh, Prague as being a larger capital because it's uh, serving a larger population. But it very quickly becomes a place that has a massive sort of outlook on the rest of the world. So you have um, a stock market open in 1990 for the first time since World War II. And it turns out that Prague is very, very beautiful. So the only upside to having the Nazis take over your city very quickly in World War II is that Prague managed to get away without really being bombed. So there are very few actual bomb hits in Prague itself. One of them hits the Old Town Hall on Old Town Square and we lose something there. But other than that, most things are intact. So, you know, you still have Charles IV's buildings. You still have Rudolf II's buildings. It's a storybook town in a way that a lot of Europe is not. 
following World War II and, you know, indeed following the Soviet takeover a lot of places. So you can go there and see this really beautiful place that's got a really distinct and unique culture. And basically, at the moment, anyone is able to go there. Everyone starts going there. Uh, And so we become a really large tourist destination, which is fantastic, because frankly, it's it's a wonderful place to be and the, the sort of place that one can walk around and be rather romantic. I think what you've done there is a very... Uh, rapid but fulsome rundown of about two and a half thousand years of history <laughs> in in what's now Prague, um, which is impressive. So as a visitor to Prague, obviously there are so many wonderful historic sites, those, those great medieval cathedrals, the Renaissance structures, and for many people, even the, the more brutalist communist structures. I'm going to ask you, this is going to be difficult, to choose five sites that you would recommend listeners visit and perhaps tell us why they've been important in the history of Prague. So this is like uh, choosing one's own children, and it's very difficult for me. But I, I would have to say I would start with Vichirat. So if you go to the south of the city, um, the ramparts of Vichirat and where the old castle was um, is very interesting for a number of reasons. So you can go and think about, you know, the the legend of uh, Le Bouge and Pchemisel. But it was rebuilt by Charles IV in the 14th century as well, because he wanted to connect himself with these same old legends. And in there, you can find the oldest rotunda uh, in the Czech Republic, which is the Rotunda of St. Martin, which dates the 10th century. There's also um, a lovely old basilica there. But what's really fantastic is there's a great graveyard there that dates to kind of the Romantic period. And there you can see the graves of like Dvorak, the composer, or um, Alphonse Mucha, who painted all, you know, the, the wonderful Art Nouveau ads that you always see everywhere. And so they, it's a really kind of who's who of the kind of turn of the century in Prague. And you get to see um, a lot of interesting connections between how people in the 19th century had these these very romantic notions about nationality, which meant that they wanted to be connected to Vichirat as well. You know, they wanted to be seen as Czech. They want to be part of the legend. Um, And you get great views out over the river and of the rest of the town. And you can kind of really see how it is that Prague develops from there. Wonderful. Okay, that's that's number one. Can you pick somewhere else that you'd recommend listeners to visit? Okay, so this is a a personal favourite, and it's connected more specifically to Charles IV, and it's the Emmaus Monastery. Um, This is very close to the Charles Square, and it was built in the 14th century. And it is very, very interesting because when Charles was ruling and he wants to make Prague a new religious capital, one of the things that he does is he invites members of various religious orders that don't exist in Prague yet to set up houses. And in particular, he invites a group of monks from the Dalmatian coastline who are Catholic but practice the Slavonic rite to come to Prague. And so he's making this big sort of cultural movement to show that, you know, Czech people have a kind of engendered Slavic form of very pure Catholicism that they can show the rest of the world. And the monastery is very, very interesting. And it's got these great extant 14th century frescoes uh, that are completely worth seeing. So it's a wonderful testament to the way that propaganda works in the 14th century and the clever ways that emperors can kind of move pieces around in order to make themselves look great. But also anytime you can find a 14th century fresco is a good day. So you've got to go to Amos. Let's meet another one of your favourite children. 
<laughs> it's got to be the new town hall. You must go and uh, see about the defenestration of Prague. People get confused and often think that it's the old town hall, which you are going to see anyway because it's got the astronomical clock. I don't need to tell you about that. But right up the top again of the Charles Square, so easy stroll from Amals, um, and you'll see this wonderful kind of um, gothic spire, and it's got the great sort of like stepped gothic uh, sides to it. And this is where we decide to throw uh, seven people of the on the city council out the window and kill them and kick off the Hussite revolution. Um, it is a really beautiful old building, and it is nice to actually see the place that this happens, especially because most tourists are also going to go to the castle and they'll see where the third defenestration happens, which kicks off the Thirty Years' War. So make sure you see the original as well, which most people skip. I'm going to push you for two more places to send the visitors who are already looking around, as you say, the astronomical clock and uh, the old town square. So I really recommend the Jubilee Synagogue, which is very, very interesting. It was built in 1906 and, and designed by the architect Wilhelm Stanitzi. It's a wonderful example of what is called the Moorish Revival. So it's a form of Art Nouveau that is specifically looking to the Ottoman Empire to make these beautiful overwrought buildings. And it's absolutely gorgeous. It has been extant and in use, except during the Nazi occupation, when it was used to store confiscated Jewish property, which is mentioned um, in the book Mendelssohn is on the Roof, which is excellent. But um, it's open to the public. It's an absolutely gorgeous building. And I think that it's very, very important to remember how incredibly integral to the history of Prague, the Jewish population is as well. Out of interest, when did the first Jewish people arrive in Prague? We know that they kind of show up in the 10th century and settle. So it's enough of a thriving trade centre by about 975 that everyone says, oh, I think it seems smart <laughs> to, to get involved in this. And, and they certainly do. Yeah. Great. Okay. Choice number five for a, a place to visit. I want people to go to the outside of the Narodny Museum. Um, and if you go to the outside of the National Museum up at the top of Voksalski Namiesti or Wenceslas Square, um, you can see the traces of bullet holes from the Prague's Spring Rebellion in 1968. So basically, the Soviets, for whatever reason, opened fire on the National Museum, and no one is exactly sure why. They hit a couple of people, but nobody died. But it's interesting to kind of look at the real scars of being taken over by other countries against one's own will. And it's also interesting because it shows how cultural monuments can serve this really important place in you know the psyche of a country so people were really upset that anyone would shoot at the museum and to that end they've left the bullet holes in the facade and there's a plaque describing it so go there and sort of have a think about what it would mean if someone rolled a tank into your neighborhood and i'm going to pronounce this wrong venceslas square uh yeah vexlaski namiesti or venceslas square yeah quite a lot of important episodes have happened in venceslas square is that right Oh, yes. So this is basically one of the main rallying points uh, in Prague. So this is where Václav Havel first addresses the crowds uh, when he is let out of uh, imprisonment in 1989. Uh, this tends to be where you have any major political rally. So this is where um, the students during the Prague Spring Rebellion, they march on Václav Klinomisti uh, chanting or we want light because there was a blackout while they were all trying to study for their finals. You know, so this is the real kind of like rallying point. Whenever something large happens, you you go to Vaxlavsky Namiesti. We should probably briefly explain who Vaxlav Havel 
was such a pivotal figure in modern history. Yes, absolutely. So Václav Havel is the first president of the Czech Republic uh, when it becomes uh, the Czech Republic. And he was a poet and playwright uh, who was really instrumental in the anti-communist movements. So he died just when I moved there, which was very depressing, but that's okay. Uh, you know, and he was just in a, a real kind of giant of both the Czech literary scene and also political scene. And he did end up leading the country for quite some time um, after writing extensively during his imprisonment by the communists. Well, I've got several good reasons to go back to Prague now. I'm going to ask you for a tip for someone like me going to Prague, uh, possibly for the first time. What piece of advice have you got? So in the first place, a go in the autumn is my, my first piece of advice. Never, never go there in the summer. It's incredibly hot. It's full of tourists. You'll never be able to, to pass around. So um, the Prosky Podzim, uh, as we call it, but the Prague autumn is absolutely beautiful and uh, it's the time to go. But also within this, if you really want to get the kind of picture postcard views, my big tip is get up early. Get up as early as you can early in the morning and go to Charles Bridge and see it when there aren't a bunch of people on it. You'll get really wonderful views out around of the city. You can see all of the big Gothic spires in the castle and it's absolutely stunningly gorgeous. So it's definitely worth getting up early and doing it in the time of year when not as many people are around. <laughs> And I think you had one uh, final culinary tip for anybody visiting to look out for. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, our finest Czech cuisines, a lot like British cuisines, um, you can find in pubs or hoshbodas. And I really encourage you, if you're visiting the city, to get outside of the old town and the ordinary tourist haunts. Now, Ufleku is fine. It's a gorgeous and wonderful beer hall. I'm not going to be mad at you if you go there. But go over to Vinorade or Nusle, and that's only like a 15-minute walk from, you know, Vokslavsky Namisti, once again, and go to any hoshboda there and there get either smichkova, which is a great uh, sort of steak in an orange cream sauce with dumplings. You'll love it. Or if for the vegetarians among us, you must try smajnisi or fried cheese, uh, which is better than it has any right to be. Eleanor, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge about the history of the city and your tips for visitors. I'll certainly be sure to be back there as soon as I can. Thank you. Thank you. That was Eleanor Yaniger. Her new book, the Once and Future Sex, which looks at women's roles in medieval society, is published by W.W. Norton in March 2023. You can read more from her on Medieval Europe in her blog at going-medieval.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.